Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, good morning. Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning. And while you're finding your way there, I do want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Hamilton Baptist Church, where Dr. Aiken said, I'm privileged to serve as one of their pastors and been appointed and installed as an elder there at that church. And I do also want to mention that I'm honored to be able to speak to you today. Uh, I did, as Dr. Aiken mentioned, graduate uh, from Southeastern now uh, two times. And I, I can think of very specific occasions, and sitting where you're sitting, where God uh, did great leaps forward in my own sanctification, in my own philosophy of ministry, in my own theology. And so I, I never thought I'd be at this place uh, where I actually get to stand up here and, and address you, and it is certainly an honor and uh, a privilege that you invite this country town preacher to come and address you this morning. So hopefully you found your way to Second Thessalonians. Just a few verses for us this morning. We'll begin in chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that way we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for your word in which we have the honor to now consider we pray that you would be kind to us and open our eyes that we might see the wonder of it. We pray as was prayed long ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. It was in the year 1686 that a 19-year-old named Elias Keach got off a ship into the colony of Pennsylvania. If the name Keach sounds familiar to you, uh, you might have learned about his father, Benjamin Keach, in your Baptist history class. Benjamin Keach was a famous early Baptist pastor in London. He would pastor there in the 1650s and up to the 1680s, even pastoring New Park Street Chapel, which 200 years later would call a young man named Charles Spurgeon to come and be their pastor. Well, his 19-year-old son gets off the boat uh, in Pennsylvania in 1686 wearing uh, the garments of a pastor. The problem is, is that Elias Keach was not a pastor. He wasn't even a Christian. He was actually fleeing from his father's uh, discipline, um, going to the far country, if you will. Evidently, that was Pennsylvania at this time. And so he sailed across the ocean uh, to get away from his father. And he thought, well, what am I going to do to make my fortune? Well, I'll pretend to be a pastor. Now, just in case you're wondering, pretending to be a pastor is not a great way to make a fortune. Uh, but he tried it nevertheless. Threw around his father's name. He began to get invites to preach, and he did okay for himself. He would preach his father's sermons and uh, would do so for quite some time. Uh, in fact, he did so until the year, two years later, when he was 21, 1688, he was preaching just north of Philadelphia to a gathering of Welsh Baptists, and he gets about halfway through his sermon as he's preaching one of his father's sermons, and he suddenly stops, and he begins to weep, and then to tremble. And those who were watching him thought he was having some type of uh, emotional breakdown, and in some sense, he was. He was actually coming under the conviction of the gospel through his own sermon, right? He would actually, at that time, repent of his sins and place his faith in Christ, right? 
and all without an altar call. I mean, it's amazing that such things could happen, right? Okay, now we're not going to repeat that today, God willing, but it is somewhat stunning that such a thing could happen. In fact, the, the Baptist historian Morgan Edwards describes the account saying, many people resorted to hear the young London divine. He performed well enough till he advanced pretty far in his sermon. Then stopping short, he looked like a man astonished. The audience concluded he had been seized with a sudden disorder, but on asking what the matter was, received from him a confession of the imposture with tears in his eyes and much trembling. Great was his distress, though it ended happily, for from this date he dated his conversion. Well, shortly thereafter, these group of Welsh Baptists really liked his preaching, and they said, we should form a church, and we should have this man be our pastor. And so they did. Now, I question the wisdom of having a man who's been a Christian for about a week to be your, your pastor, but nevertheless, they did in 1688, forming Pennypack Baptist Church. Now, the reason I tell you this story is for three reasons. One, personal. Pennypack Baptist Church would, 60 years later, plant Catoctin Baptist Church in 1750 in Northern Virginia when it was still illegal to be Baptist in Virginia. That church, 140 years later in 1889, would plant a little church 15 miles away called Hamilton Baptist Church, which I'm privileged to pastor. So that's my grand, grandmother church that did that. The second reason I tell you this story is that this Pennypack Baptist Church didn't plant Catoctin Baptist Church in 1750 alone. In fact, in 1707, with four other churches, they would form what you know as the Philadelphia Baptist Association, the oldest Baptist association in the world, and they would plant Catoctin Baptist Church cooperatively. And I mention that because I've been invited here today by the Pillar Network, which is a network of like-minded Baptist churches that are committed to planting and revitalizing churches cooperatively, actually doing it together with other churches in our region. In fact, it was just a, a month ago that Hamilton Baptist Church, my church, sent 10% of our members and 50% of our elders to go plant Lovettsville Baptist Church about 12 miles away, 131-year-old church now uh, planting churches and I praise God that we could do so, but I, I'll be honest, I, we would not have been able to do so without our brothers and sisters in our region, in our pillar network. And so I thank and praise God for the pillar network. The third reason I tell you this story is I think it's just stunning. And uh, the, 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 the power and both the foolishness of preaching God's word is stunning to me. It's confounding. And in fact, it is to preaching God's word that Paul now turns in 2 Thessalonians. If you're familiar with this book, you know that he spends most of his time explaining the events that are going, accompanying Christ's return, including a great apostasy of Christians. He gets to the end of chapter 2, and he, he says, Now, Thessalonians, I, I pray that you would remain steadfast in the word that you receive, and even praise that God would establish them in it. But then in chapter 3, he says, I want that not only for you, but I want it for others as well. As he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. So this morning... As we consider the triumph of the Word of God, consider, first of all, the messengers of the Word. Paul says, pray for us. Paul's writing from the town of Corinth, and his start in Corinth was somewhat rough. If you know, uh, and I'm sure you, you've learned Paul's missionary journeys, he, he heads over to Greece and uh, gets into Philippi, and he does all right. He plants his church there rather quickly, but soon they, they turn on him, they beat him with rods, they throw him into prison, uh, leave him there in the inner dungeon. He therefore leaves Philippi, Edsa, Thessalonica. He's there for three weeks, 
does well there, plants a church, but soon, once again, they turn upon him. A mob is formed, and he sneaks out of town in the middle of the night. He goes on to Berea. Things are going okay in Berea until the Jews in Thessalonica hear he's down there, and they come and chase him out of that town. He goes into Athens then, and uh, he has some success, but it seems like the Athenians are so full of themselves, they just delight to mock Paul in light of his belief in the resurrection. And finally, Paul actually limps into Corinth, the vast city of Corinth, and he's been beaten and bruised. He's been harassed and chased out. And he is, according to his own language, full of discouragement. He writes that he came to Corinth uh, with weakness, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so he takes up the quill and writes to the Thessalonians and says, brothers and sisters, will you pray for us? And I, I should say so. But what does Paul want them to pray for? Well, you notice he says here, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. So Paul thinks of his ministry, when he thinks about what he's doing, he links it with the advancement of the word of the Lord. And we see that, of course, Paul understands this many places, and he writes, perhaps the fav my favorite place is 1 Timothy 2, 4, when Paul says, I've been entrusted with the gospel. I just like the language of the entrustment. That's meaningful to me as a pastor. It was in uh, September of 2017, after about a year of training and preparation and, and being vetted, that uh, my wife and I were approved to become foster parents. And it was on September 11th, actually, 2017, uh, Monday morning, I got a call from a, a government worker, and, and they said, we just took a baby into custody. We'd like to place her with you. Is that okay? I said, yeah, let's do that. And so I came home, 10 a.m., government worker showed up with a one-month-old baby. She was there for 15 minutes and left. She just drived up my drive, out of my driveway, and there's a baby in my living room, one-month-old, and, and here it is. And now my wife and I are thinking, wait a second, you could get babies without pregnancies? I mean, this is awesome. I wish you'd been doing this much sooner. This is fantastic, right? And, and, and off she goes. It's just a little, just a cute little, just tiny, one-month-old infant that I had been entrusted with. Entrusted to protect and to care, to nurture, to raise, and to guide. Paul says, I've been entrusted with the gospel. And later he would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And he would say in chapter 1 and verse 4, Timothy, now the young pastor of the church of Ephesus, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then perhaps you know, chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, what you heard from me, here's the same word, entrust to faithful men. He says, I was entrusted with the gospel, then, then I entrusted it to you, and, and now you've, you need to entrust it to others. And the entrustment of the gospel keeps going on it. It hasn't stopped. It's just passed on from one generation to another. For 2,000 years, there has been a continuous entrustment of the gospel to the next generation. As lives are changed, and churches are planted, and sinners are saved, and the gospel is advanced, and the glory of Christ is proclaimed. You my friends, are in that lineage. If you are in Christ, you have been entrusted with the gospel. We ought to be faithful with that entrustment. At the very least, we must speak it, therefore. I got a chuckle when I heard uh, Kevin DeYoung share the story of a pastor friend of his when he said uh, his, his pastor friend came to faith in Christ as a freshman in high school on the football field when a senior on that football team walked up to him and said, hey man, you don't know me, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus sometime this year. Do you want to do that now or later? Right? I'm going to tell you about Jesus. You just pick the time. And so he says, I guess we'll do it now. He heard the gospel. He believed the gospel there. And now he's serving as a pastor. We, we need to do that. We need to speak the gospel. It needs to be on our lips. We are, have been entrusted with it. We are trusted to protect it 
trusted to communicate it. You who are going to go into vocational ministry are trusted to become experts in it, to apply it, to live out of it, to not alter it. And you, by the way, will feel the pressure to alter it. You, you will, especially those who are going to serve as a primary preacher pastor, you are going to, to come into the pulpit week after week and preach to the same people Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and you are going to feel a pressure. I need to come up with something new to say. I need to be innovative. I need to be clever. I need to, to catch their attention. I, to be honest, I felt that pressure even preparing for this message. I mean, I'm coming down to my, my alma mater. I'm going to be preaching to professors and, and the students that they're learning from. I need to be clever. I need to come up with something good, something you haven't heard. And so I was helped, as I have been often, by Peter's exhortation, who says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. So I will make every effort to see that after my death, you will always be able to remember these things. May I share with you that the ministry of the word is a ministry of reminding, not innovating. We are to remind them of who Christ is, and what Christ has done, and what he is doing, and what he will do. We need to remind them of who we are in Christ, and who we were when we were outside of Christ, and what we one day will be when we are in Christ. We need to speak of Christ as we share the word of the Lord. That's what Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. And I'm going to come back to that speed ahead phrase, I think, but I don't want you to glance over the fact that when Paul says, I come and speak to you, I'm actually speaking God's words to you. Now, you know that, that's familiar to you, but do not let the familiarity of it lose and rob you of, of the stunningness of that reality. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you heard the word of God from us. It is Jesus who said in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice. How do they hear the voice of Christ? He's in heaven. Well, they hear it as Christ delights to speak through us. And don't, don't glance over that. that Jesus, you would, you would use my words to speak through. That people would hear you call through me. That to me is stunning. I've been so helped by John Piper's ministry. I started seminary here in 1999, and John Piper soon came to this chapel service. Uh, it was kind of before he was Piper, right? He had written a couple books, but he hadn't blown up like Piper had blown up. But I, I, that's one of those chapel services I will remember for the rest of my life. His, as Piper said, listen, if you're going to give yourself to the ministry of the word, you must be thrilled that you get to teach it. He, I think, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, he said, you have to eat the meal before you serve it. Right, that, that when you come and if you don't love what you're about to preach, if you're not floored with what you're about to preach, you better repent and do so quickly. Because you ought to preach in a way that communicates that you have heard the voice of God and you have come to share it. You ought to preach in a way that communicates you have seen the glory of God and you have come to show others it. God uses messengers in his word and if we are to be faithful, we will be opposed. Consider, secondly, the opposition to the word. You know what Paul says here in verse 2. And, we may, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. 
for not all have faith. In other words, we're reminded once again that we should not be surprised when the world does not like God's word, when they apply pressure to change God's word. I pastor uh, in a Washington, D.C. suburb. Many of my members serve uh, in the United States government, and they are finding it increasingly difficult to serve in that capacity and follow Christ at the same time. We have, I have members of my church who work in our public school system. I don't know if you watch the news, but I, li- I live in Loudoun County. The Loudoun County public school system is on the news, national news, every night. And they are wondering, how is it that I could follow Christ and actually do what they are demanding that I do? Right? Because the world doesn't want God's word. They'll, they will oppose you. And, and, and some of you might be surprised when you find out that being a pastor isn't actually a cool job to have. Most people are going to think it's weird. I don't even tell people I'm a pastor anymore. I, I used to tell people I'm a counselor. I used to tell people I'm a teacher. Now I tell people I'm a motivational speaker, right? And, and they at first don't believe you, but then you can convince them. They say, well, what do you talk about? I said, well, I'm the opposite of a self-help preacher, a teacher. I say, I say, we need help, but we can't find it with ourselves. We have to find it elsewhere, right? It's not something that people, they don't even understand what it is. What does a preacher do? They don't, they don't like it. They, they oppose it. Of course, the opposition uh, not only comes from the outside, but it comes from the inside as well. Notice the language in which Paul uses here in verse 2 when he says, for not all have faith. The commentators that I read suggest that he's implying that there are some within the church that claim to be Christian, but actually don't believe. Maybe they even think they believe, but they don't believe. And they make this argument from this word wicked. You see that there? At least I'm preaching from the ESV. It's translated differently in different translations. It's, it's a, that word wicked is only used here in the entire New Testament. Uh, I'm hesitant to even use my Greek. It's been a while, but it's a tapas, a tapas. If I remember correctly, tapas is the Greek word for place. You put the alpha in front of it. It negates it. It literally, the literal rendition might be of no place. And I think what Paul is saying is when people, when people gather as God's people, there will be people there who believe themselves to be Christian, but actually are not. They're a tapas. They're out of place. And you've heard that story. Maybe, maybe that's your story, that you were going to church for years. And finally, something happened one day, and you realized they're sitting in the pew perhaps that I thought I was a believer, but I actually, actually not. And at that point, I have a man in the church who was just sharing with me. I thought I was a believer my whole life until I discovered I was playing a game. And, and he gave his life to Christ. For that old time, he was, he was a tapas. And I don't, I don't want to presume that, there's, that perhaps there, there might be someone here who is out of place. That perhaps you think you're a believer and perhaps God has been working on your heart and you realize that you have yet to, to trust in Christ for your salvation. And so may I share with you that Jesus Christ has died for this, to pay the sin debt for all who would trust in him. And three days later, he rose from the dead showing that God has accepted that payment and showing that he has paved a way for life after death. And now he stands as the crucified Savior and the resurrected Lord offers forgiveness of sins to all who would trust in him. And so if you find yourself outside of Christ, I offer you forgiveness today. I offer you salvation today through Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I think that's the language of repentance. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I think that's the language of faith you will be saved. Of course, many of these atopos people, these, those who don't have faith, will not come to faith 
in Christ. They will rise in opposition of, of the gospel, of the word of the Lord. That's why Paul says, hey, I need you to pray for me that I be delivered from such people. It seems like you can't read one of Paul's letters without him explaining that there was opposition going to rise from within the church. Much of his ministry is devoted to that. So there will be opposition outside, there will be opposition inside, and if you'll allow me for maybe 30 seconds just to stretch the text a little bit, that there is opposition from within us. That we might also add, and I think the elsewhere in Scripture teaches us, that we have to be delivered from our own wickedness as well. This, this month, I, I celebrate my 23rd year in vocational ministry, and if you were to ask me, Stephen, what's been the greatest opposition, who, who's been the greatest opposition to your ministry, the, the answer is obvious. It's been me. And so what do we do in light of this opposition? Well, you note this is a, this is a prayer request. See that in verse 1? Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that, verse 2, we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. We need to pray that we would not make a train wreck of our ministry and bring reproach upon God and his church. We need to pray that we will withstand the ongoing pressure to accommodate and to assimilate and to placate the voices of dissent. We need to pray, as Paul tells us, that the word of the Lord would be victorious. And so we've seen the, the messengers of the word and the opposition to the word. Thirdly, consider the victory of the word. Returning back to verse 1, I love the language that Paul uses here when he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord, and note two things that we're praying for, that it might speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. And so Paul is imagining the word of the Lord as a runner. Corinth, of course, was famous for its games, and so he wants the word to run ahead. He wants it to be honored. You know that footnote, perhaps, in the bottom of your Bible, that word honors literally to be glorified. He wants the word of the Lord to be glorified. He wants it to win the race, right? An athlete is glorified when she is recognized as better than all the competitors, right? There is great glory there. There's great glory when Duke, once again, tromps upon Carolina, right? We all rejoice and celebrate. At least God's people do, of course, right? And so Paul says, I want the word of the Lord to run ahead, and I, I want it to win. I want it to be crowned as superior to all its competitors, all the theories and all the worldviews and all the philosophies and all the religions and all the other words. I want the word of the Lord to receive its glory. I want it to win. Pray for that. And of course, it wins. It's glorified when it is received. And so we read in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, the Gentiles rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord and as many were who were appointed to eternal life believed. In high school, I, I ran uh, cross country and track. I was a, I was a slow runner, but I could, I could run for a while. So I ran the two mile in track. That's eight laps around the track. Now, I wasn't ever really good. I never won a race. I, to be honest, I never had a goal of winning a race, which might be why I never won a race. But my goal, whenever I was running the two-mile, is to not be lapped, okay? There's nothing more embarrassing than when you start off with a guy, and then like eight or nine minutes into the race, he comes up from behind you and says, hello again, and then off he goes. Does it look to you like the word of the Lord is being lapped? Does it, does it look to you like it's winning? I mean, that's what he's praying for. 
It seems to me that every day I wake up, there is a, there's a, like a new evil that has been invented and the world is celebrating. I learned from Al Mohler's podcast yesterday that Superman is bisexual, right? which is probably a sentence never said in this chapel before. Right? right? And we're all supposed to get on board. That's great, right? The thought police are telling us to line up. And meanwhile, it seems to me, and I don't want to be too negative here, but it seems to me that uh, at least part of the church is, is preoccupied with yelling back at the world and demanding our rights, just like Jesus told us to do, right? No, he didn't tell us to do that. When we're not yelling, quite often we're turning the guns on one another. It is, kind of looks to me like the word of the Lord is out for John. And all the other worldviews are flying by. And so if you have that thought, if you, you look around and you see that, can I remind you that you know, you've read this book, right? And it seems like from beginning to end, we see a theme over and over and over again. That God likes to take what looks like losing and bring it to great victory. And that he gets the glory for that. He likes to take the, the foolishness, to shame the wise and the powerless, to overcome uh, the powerful. I'm in my church preaching through the, the book of Genesis, and I just studied Genesis 36, and it's, it's just the lineage of Esau. It's name after name after name, descendants of Esau. And, and these, this king came from Esau, and this chief came from Esau, and Esau had this possession, and, and the descendants occupied all this land, and it's a very impressive list. And then you get to chapter 37, verse 1, and I'm paraphrasing, but it says, and Jacob was living in a tent in somebody's backyard. You got Esau, who has nations coming from, kings and chiefs, and you got some guy just bouncing around in a land he does not own, and God says, I think I'll choose that guy. That's the one I'll use. I was listening to a podcast last week, and I love this phrase. that he's, They said, God likes to take little boys to kill giants. And so is the word of God going to lose? Last time I read the Bible, the word of the Lord created everything. God spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. And so we must answer emphatically, no, it is not going to lose. The Bible tells us over and over again, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We read in Revelation, a verse you're familiar with, behold a great multitude which no one can number from every, from all the tribes and peoples and nations and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. We know God is going to take his word and it will triumph. I, and I've seen glimpses of it in my own life, and I'm sure you have as well. It was in uh, 2006 that I was sitting uh, on a, a, in a little village called Yenamalan on a little island in the South Pacific. The, the island's about 10 miles by 20. Uh, it's hard to even find on a map. And uh, I, I was sitting there, I was about to do a mission trip there, and these, I was sitting amongst some people who were some of the last people on earth to give up cannibalism. About 40 years early, they were headhunters up to that point. And the missionaries who had been translating the Bible were there, and they had spent 10 years there, and they had left that morning, and, and, and they're gone. They're never coming back. They packed everything up, and they left, and they left me there. So I'm there amongst all these grass huts and these villagers wearing village clothing, 
Um, and, and we're about to take a three or four day hike through the jungle bush into these inland villages where I'm going to preach the gospel to villages who have never heard uh, of Christianity, heard of Jesus, villages who have never seen a, a white man, very, very remote places. And one of the villagers, nine villagers are going to come with me from this village. And one of them walks up to me about two hours before we leave. And he says, Pastor, I have something to tell you. I said, okay. He says, Foxes have holes. I said, okay. He says, and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then with a big smile on his face, he, he points to the jungle. And he says, tonight we will be like Christ. Because we have no idea where we're going or where we will stay. But how beautiful the feet that will bring good news. And I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere amongst people who were who who eating them each other just a, a matter of years ago, and he's teaching me Scripture. He's taking the Word of God, and he's applying it to my life. God's Word will win when you and I pray. Le- consider lastly and quickly, prayer for the Word. I once again draw your attention to the fact that Paul is requesting prayer. He says, please pray for this. So he wants God, of course, he's asking for prayer because he wants God to empower the preaching and empower the listening so that when the people hear it, they will hear it as the word of the Lord. When they hear me teach, and when they hear me explain scripture, that they will receive it as God's word. Now you, you hear it that way, don't you? When someone teaches you the Bible, you hear it as God's word. I mean, that, that, that's stunning. It should stun you. I mean, what are you doing here? It's, I mean, you're here Thursday morning listening to a man you don't know from a country church you'll never see talk to you in a 35-minute monologue about an ancient text. You know, your neighbors would rather go to the dentist than doing what you're doing. And you come, and you came on Tuesday, and you'll come next week, and you show up on Sunday, and, and you love it. Why? Don't you understand it's a work of God in your life? God has opened your heart to receive it. In fact, in Second, First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, I thank God constantly that when I took the word of God to you, you received it not as the word of man, but as it actually is the word of God. I am constantly thanking God that you received it as God's word because not all did. Some heard it and they stoned me. Some heard it and they beat me with rods. Some heard it and they chased me out of town. You heard it. I thank God that you heard it as the word of God. And if you hear it today as the word of God, my brothers and sisters, there should be great gratitude overflowing in your heart. I love the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that I love the Bible. As John Piper says, left to ourselves, the Bible will be another religious opinion like the Grand Canyon is just like another ditch. We ought to continue to pray even for our own hearts. The psalmist taught us this, I think. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. We, we, we don't want to hear the Bible and hear nothing. Help me, God. That's what Paul's asking. God, you do this work. And, and, and it's stunning, isn't it? In some sense, I mean, you've heard this before. Is Paul that's asking this? I mean, Paul's, I mean, just seeing the risen Christ, he's writing the Bible and he knows it. 
He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's utterly brilliant. He writes to a church with a handful of Christians who have maybe been a Christ, Christians for about one year at this point. And he says, oh, Thessalonians, will you please pray for me? I need you to pray for me. It was in August in 1806 when five college students were taking a walk in Massachusetts. And uh, they were discussing the theology of missions. William Carey has worked up all sorts of interest in missions. What's missions? What's going on? When a sudden, you know the story, I trust, when a stu- uh, thunderstorm rose. And so they, the driving rain and the, and the nearby lightning was all the encouragement they needed to seek shelter in a nearby haystack. So they were on the backside of a haystack. And while they're waiting for the, for the storm to go by, five college, college students, by the way, just your age, they said, we should pray for missions. And so in the midst of this thunderstorm on the backside of the haystack, they begin to pray, God, what would you use us to do for missions? By the way, in 1806, there is no mission agency in all of America. There is no overseas missionary ever sent from America at this point. You've got five college students saying, God, will you use us? Four years later, those five college students would form the American Board, let me get this right, of commissioners for foreign missions. They would send out thousands of missionaries among them, the first overseas American missionaries, Adoniram and Ann Judson. How does such a movement begin? Well, it does so through prayer. They prayed. See, the word of the Lord will have victory. It will be glorified when we pray. The biblical logic is never God will win, therefore do nothing. The biblical logic is God is going to win, therefore share, therefore love, therefore serve, and certainly therefore pray. God intends to expand his kingdom to every nation, but he intends to do it through prayer. And so we must pray. We must pray for our pastors and our elders and our Sunday school teachers that they would hold to the truth and declare it boldly. We, we must pray for parents and grandparents that the word of the Lord would run from their mouth and be honored in the lives of their children and their grandchildren. We must pray for regeneration and church planning and strengthening and sending missionaries and revival in this land. Our time is up, but you notice just what he says there in verse 3. Beautiful little word to hide in your heart, but the Lord is faithful. He is faithful. May we be found faithful as well. My brothers and sisters here at Southeastern Seminary, you are receiving a world-class education in how to teach this, how to learn it, how to know it, right? You are being equipped to becoming experts in it. But may you understand that you only can wield it through prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is to us. We're thankful that we love it. We're thankful that we can say with the psalmist that it is altogether perfect. It revives our soul and enlightens our eyes. Father, may we be committed to it. Even as we face the opposition in this world, may we be committed to your word out of a commitment to you. And as we do, Father, may we pray. May we be chiefly dependent upon you, desperate for you to work as we call out to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.